My name is Mark Alvin. I was born in West Bridgewater and we lived in Attleboro, Massachusetts. I remember all the way back to very, very early days. In fact, I, I claim to remember being brought home from the hospital. But we moved to Kamaquid on Cape Cod, which is like uh, by Barnstable. And then shortly after we moved to Centerville and then we settled in Hyannis, where I was pretty much raised from the age of three until I left home. I think I was 16, my father <laughs> kicked me out because I got a motorcycle and had long hair. And he was like, you're out of here. I was the youngest of six and they had had it, you know. They were just tired and they said, go live with your sister. So I lived across town with my sister, Abby. And um, she was a child of the 60s, taking in whoever wanted to come and live there. So it was kind of like a crash pad. So that was how I got started with the community because uh, I, I wanted to get out of the whole Cape Cod druggy scene. You know, I, was, I got through high school not living at home. I didn't even live with my sister anymore. I moved in with some friends in Hyannisport. And um, so my sister called me up one day and said, I'm in love with 80 people. And I said, well, what are you talking about? She said, we moved and we're in Heath. And I said, oh, I'd love to come out and visit. I've got some great hash. She said, you're not going to need it. She said, this place is incredible. There's no drugs, no alcohol, no promiscuity, no tobacco. And so it was spring of 1970. I hitchhiked out for my spring break and it absolutely floored me at at that point, they were living in Warwick. They had moved to Warwick. Two of the members were ancient people of the age of 40, two women. And they put on their nice clothes and got a, a loan and bought the house in Warwick, which is up there on Shepherdson Road. And I'd never seen anything like this in my life because there was no television. There was no, you've got to remember, this is before any modern day cell phones or computers or anything. And there were 80 people living pretty much in a farmhouse and in little tents around, you know, squeezed into that house. It's still there. And it was called the Brotherhood of the Spirit. And I don't know if I want to get into all the details of how it started, because there's all kinds of history. And a lot at the University of Massachusetts, there's a whole archive of photos there that you can look at that go way back to the treehouse, the treehouse that started in Leiden. But the general idea was that Michael Metallica was, I think when he was 16 or 17, I don't know if he had dropped out of school or maybe it was when he finished school. It was in 1969. Decided he was going to go check out the Hells Angels because he wanted he wanted brotherhood. He had this, this fantasy of people living in harmony. And that was the closest thing he could find. And he hitchhiked out there. Fresno, maybe? California? found out how violent and awful it was and came back and got to the point where they, you know, he was getting ready to, to walk onto their property and he turned around and came back. And you got to remember, this is all in the context of the Vietnam War and the summer of love in 1969 and all that stuff. So he decided to build a treehouse and live off the land and work for a farmer in his dairy so he, he built a treehouse in this great big spreading tree down in a little valley in their field and worked on their farm. And 
it got so much attention from so many people that, you know, friends of his from high school came out and started hanging out and they kind of moved in and then there was like five or eight of them and then a couple of girls came along and his sister and it just sort of grew and it kept getting media attention. As soon as high school ended, I had borrowed my father's car and I drove out there. I didn't even wait for my graduation. The last day of class, I was was out there. Because the draw to it was, it was so anti-commercial, anti-television. The whole thing was being bluntly and baldly honest with each other. I mean, really, really nitty-gritty telling it like it is to each other. And I have to constantly remind myself and others when we talk about this that we were teenagers. We were kids. And it, (laughs) it was a fantastic adventure because for the first probably three or four years of being there, there was no cigarettes. There was no drinking. There was no alcohol. Promiscuity was, there's, you know, what are you going to do when you put a whole bunch of kids together in a very small space? I'm sure that that was sort of waved (laughs) or overlooked because everybody was having relationships and eventually there were kids being born. But um, that feeling of the, the fantasy that we all shared that we were going to save the world. You know, we believed that we, that we knew what brotherhood and peace and love and being open and honest, we knew what that was. And nobody else did, of course, you know. So there were spiritual beliefs that were kind of, as I look back, they were really kind of wacky. So Elwood Babbitt was a medium. He was a trans medium. He was a, a seer. He was a really unique person. He had the most kind eyes and the most calm personality. He was a wonderful man. But he would go into these trances. You know, he'd call everybody and say, we're going to have a, a lecture. And he would sit there and all of a sudden his voice would change. And out would come this <laughs> tremendous voice. And he would say, um, I am spirit. And I, you know, it was like, and the, the lectures that he gave, looking back, I always thought, even then, I thought they were gobbledygook. There was a lot of stuff that was just like, what are you talking about? This doesn't, and people would say, oh, he, he's in spirit and the energy is so high that it's very hard to, to understand it on this level, you know, justify it in all kinds of ways. Nothing really hurtful or harmful was ever said. It was mostly, interestingly, a lot a lot of prophecy was made about the turn of the century, around the year 2000, that after 2000, there were going to be what, what were described as earth changes. We didn't know about global warming, but they were very explicit and specific about changes that were coming right after the year 2000, that it was going to be, uh, you know, just end-of-the-world stuff, you know, talking about rising sea levels, war, pestilence, you know, all that stuff. And I just don't like to focus on that kind of thing. I don't think that it's helpful. And so I didn't I didn't really get into that too much. I was so interested in being an artist and a musician, which is what I've been all my life. And there were so many opportunities to do that in the community. There were so, so many creative people. The kooky, creative, wacky people from the world were attracted to that 
So we had a wide variety of extremely intelligent misfits, artists, musicians, um, people that had just picked up and walked out of their mental institution, like escaped, you know, people from New York City. Once the articles came out in uh, Family Circle and might have been Woman's Day or one of those, they, they had national reporters coming up and taking pictures and putting articles in these magazines. And that would bring in hundreds of people from New York. Poof, there they are with their vans and their kids and their cockroaches and their dogs. And just arrived. And there was a policy of putting people as a prospective member for two weeks. And there was this great big tent we called the PM tent, the prospective member tent. And after two weeks, they were voted on by the whole community as to whether or not they should stay. And I'd say probably two-thirds of the people got to stay and the other third were booted out. But we accepted some real, looking back, some really colorful characters that I wouldn't doubt went on to do really remarkable things. I mean, a lot of the people in the community have done really remarkable things. The uh, Renaissance Greeting Card Company, which I was part of starting went on to become a really big card company through the 70s and 80s. And eventually it was bought by Marion Heath. And it's kind of just, I think the name is just kind of petered out. But Michael wanted to be a rock star. And so the commune was just kind of a thing that was there while he was trying to become a star. And he surrounded himself with highly talented, gifted musicians. And he had this charismatic power of making people do what he wanted to do. But as a musician, he was horrible. He was terrible. He couldn't carry a tune. He had no sense of rhythm. He had terrible pitch. He was just... But he'd get up on stage with all this energy and all this power because he was a really powerful person. And he'd somehow kind of carry it off surrounded by really, really incredible, incredible musicians who, for all I can tell, were there because it was a chance to play their, you know, instruments with really good equipment because we always put tons of money into, you know, the best of everything. So there were all these sort of layers of the onion, things that were going on. And I was thinking before I came over that, do, do you come from a big family? Well, if you're, if you're in a family, I'm a, a family of six and my family looks like this out of out of a little circle where where I'm looking this being my my perspective is you know I I see my family during these years with these things happening and these people interacting but my oldest sister who was born first had a whole different family you know if you think about it each of those six people had a completely different family because it was based on their perception. There, there were things that were certainly in common. Yes, these things happened at these dates and these people were the parents and so forth, but what they took away and how it shaped them and how they contributed and what happened at different times that was important to them specifically is uniquely different to each person. So <laughs> when somebody says to you, I'm a community historian and I'm going to tell you what happened, it's not really fair because, for example, there was a dark really dark underside to the community that I never knew about. I never knew. I was so busy painting album covers and t-shirt designs and recording little songs and stuff that I didn't know that there was 
dark stuff going on. There was, you know, women were treated terribly. There were rapes. There were children that were molested. You know, there was that, there was that level, you know, that, that happened. It was like everywhere else that's kind of suppressed and it doesn't come out until many years later when it did come out. It was pretty sad and I kind of felt like, how could I, how could I not have seen that, you know? But on the other side of it, there's the incredible goodness that happened and things that we did that were so loving and generous. Like every year at Christmas, this might have been something that Michael had said. This would be a good idea if, but it was the people in the community that made this happen. Every Christmas we would take, by now we had, we had bought the block in Turner's Falls, the Shea Theater, that whole block, we owned it. Yeah, we bought it for $50,000, I think. The Shea Theater, and then next to it is the old opera house that goes right to the corner. And that's like a two or three story building. And that goes back to the beginning of those apartments. So we owned all of that and all of the Shea Theater. And we would turn the theater into a massive dining room for whomever wanted to come for Thanksgiving or Christmas to eat. And there were a lot of people living in Turner's at that time that were World War II vets, alcoholic people that were just street people. You know, there is really, really a different town than it is now, I think. And we'd take them all in, feed them, play music for them, you know, get them going, play cards with them, do whatever. There was a lot of that kind of expression of love and brotherhood. And the other thing that was interesting is that we had so much pushback from Northfield. That's what I was going to talk about. I was going to talk about some of the adventures in Northfield. But the town of Northfield, from my perspective, was a very conservative, old-fashioned farm community where there weren't a lot of young people. And if they were young people, they were probably, you know, in 4-H or something like that. And we came along and we had long hair and we had this really outgoing personality. Howdy, how are you doing? You know, eye contact, you know, tr trying to get real and honest with people. And they were freaked out by us because we were kids and there were lots of us, two or 300 at any one time, you know, living, you know, and, and up to maybe three or 400. And the property started in Warwick. We owned Warwick. We owned Turner's Falls. And then the house over, I call it Gill, but it's actually on the other side of, you know where the railroad tracks go across on the other side of the river? There's a little crossing there with lights. There's a house right there. We owned that house. We called it the Gill House. And then we bought the Old Stone Lodge over in Gill, which is still semi-owned by the community, what's left of it. So in Turner's and in these other locations at the same time? Yes. And so there were people living in them. We had bands that would come in from Boston. We had a production company. Bands would come up from Boston. We would videotape them with these video cameras that were like this big. You know, it was a new thing, probably two feet long by one foot high, and they were probably 30 pounds. This was, whoa, video technology with cables running all over the place. And we'd videotape them, and we had a first-class 16-track recording studio up in the theater in the balcony. It was a production company. They would promote the bands and get them a video and cut really good demos for them. It was quite a good business for a while, I think. I was one of a group of maybe four or five artists. 
I was probably the, the, the main go-to guy because I was so productive. I was, you know, if somebody needed a bumper sticker or the side of their vehicle painted with the name of the band or t-shirts designed, and there was so much of that. There was so much design and drawing and portraits and stuff like that. And I got into all of that and I loved it. And I did do a little bit of recording with the band. I had a song that I did that they recorded. What's called? Take Me Back. <laughs> I never realized until recently that I had written it after a terrible breakup with some young girl that I just was so in love with. And to me, it was like, take me back. I was like singing to God, you know, take me, take me out of here, take me home, you know. <laughs> and recently, I thought, take me back. <laughs> some part of me was singing because I wanted her to take me back. I'm sorry, that was just really funny to me. Yeah. We played it in Boston, and I went with the band to play it. And I always joke about, you know, your 15 minutes of fame. And the band's music was so harsh and so loud and so in-your-face and so preachy, you know. It was preachy. The music was all about, you know, you better get your act together because <laughs> it's just BS, you know. So when you and, say the band, you mean the community? Uh, yes, the, the community. We, we had... At any one time, one, well, usually just one rock band. The first one was Spirit and Flesh. It cut an album with Metro Media Records. And then it became, oh gosh, I can't remember all the names, Rapunzel. Michael, <laughs> Michael changed his name to Rapunzel. He was going off deeper and deeper and deeper. He was getting crazier and crazier as time went on. But the band played in Boston and I went and I was to perform this song and Michael was going to sing it. And, and it was in a, a well-known club. I don't remember the name of it, but it was like the place to play. It was a big club that had like seats that went up like almost like an amphitheater. There were tables all around. And the people were just like tuning out the music and they were talk, talking over it and around it. And this little song that I did was a real country sounding thing. It was really sort of like John Denvery, you know. And I had this 12-string um, guitar. That had and they said, all right, go up, you're up, you're up, go on. And everybody was talking. And it was the strangest thing to walk out to the front of the stage playing this guitar and have everybody go quiet. The whole place stopped to listen. And, you know, Michael came barging out and started singing. And, and you know, it just kind of spoiled the the... The, the vibe of the beginning of the song, but people really liked it and they listened and they clapped. And after that, he, he took me backstage and said, I want you to write songs for us, for me, write songs for me. So I did. He said, don't do anything but write songs. So I said, all right. And I lived in the um, basement in Warwick under the chimney. It was a six foot by six foot. We had built a brand new chimney and there was a six foot by six foot by six foot room at the bottom of the chimney. It's a huge old chimney with a big door. And I went down in there and it was dead silent. And I slept during the day and I wrote songs during the night. And I had no recording equipment. I had to write them and memorize them. And I wrote probably eight songs. And um, some months later, Michael said, did you ever write any songs? I said, yeah, I've got eight. And he said, play them. And so I played them. And he sat and he listened. He said, I can't. They're good, but I can't. I can't sing those. They're, they're just not me. Go, <laughs> go, go back to painting your whatever. So I did, but that was a really. Um, I see those as 
incredible opportunities to be in a place where people would actually ask you to do something that you really love and then have to do it, have to memorize it, have to um, play it. And the fact that they weren't used to this day, it doesn't bother me at all. And it's funny because I don't remember them. I remember maybe a part of one. But it's a very it's a very dear memory that I got to do that. And lots and lots of paintings. I learned how to I learned to paint from working with other artists and from being challenged to do things that I didn't know how to do. And I had this drive to learn and make myself better. And because I did all that, when I left the community, I was able to get a um, work right away as a commercial artist. I was good enough to be, you know, it was doing greeting cards because I had started the greeting card company with a bunch of other people. It was the Renaissance card company. It, it, it wasn't my idea to start the card company by any means. For years, we would make a bunch of cards and I don't think I was even involved in the very first of them. And at Christmas time, we would send them out to all the family and friends of the community. Like there was hundreds and hundreds of people that got a greeting card and they were always something original from the community. And I still remember one of the guys picking me up on, on a Harley over here in Gill and driving me to Turner's and talking to me over his shoulder all the way saying, we're going to start a greeting card company and you're going to be the guy that's going to do all the artwork. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good. But, um, we set up in a dairy barn over there in where the old stone lodges there on Main Road in Gill. And we filled in the floor with cement and made a wall at the end and turned it into, it was a silk screen shop where we did t-shirts, but we also did the first line of greeting cards there. And if I, if I had known, you know, this is the classic thing, if I'd only known then what I know now, if I had maintained any ownership of that company, you know, it's if I instead I just crept out and drove to Chicago and said, I'm leaving, I'm out of here. You know, when it finally got too crazy, I just, this is nuts, I'm leaving. Because it really did get crazy. We got to get to Northfield first, though. Northfield. I wanted to tell about, I'm, I'm trying to remember, it was the summer of 1971. And I was sleep deprived having hitchhiked down to Tennessee and back with two girls to promote the band. <laughs> and on the way we'd been thrown in jail and we'd been, uh, it was just, it was just like the most, I wish I had written down some of the adventures. I mean, we got picked up by a carnival truck driver, <laughs> went to, you know, carnies in the middle of the night, setting up a carnival thing, all that kind of stuff. It's like a movie. And when I came back, I was absolutely toast. And I, and I slept in this tent out behind the main house because I was always looking for being an introvert, you know, always looking for a quiet place. This would be 88 Main Street. It was the first youth hostel in the United States. I want to say the guy's name was Smith, but that's easy, an easy guess. But uh, he had started the youth hostel thing, and that house was the first one, and we lived in it. any rate, I got up, and I was working in the garden. And I was digging in the garden out behind the house and hit something hard. And I continued to dig, and it was something round. And it was iron, and it was rusty. And I pulled it out of the ground, 
and it was a round ball, like a cannonball, but it had a sort of a neck that came off of it and then a rounded sort of back of something. And I deduced that it was the back of a cannon and it was really old and it was right there in our garden. And I picked it up and I showed it around and brought it over to the library. I wanted the historical society. And I think somebody here was associated with the Northfield Historical Society. So I I gave it to them. Many years later, probably around 2000, a friend of mine who lived here, Dan Brown, called me and he said, where did you find that piece of the cannon? Because there's a person here that's really interested in the history of that broken cannon and wants to know where it was found. I said, well, it was found in the back of 88 Main Street. And we talked about it a little bit more, and that was the end of it. So when I moved out here in 2017 from Cape Cod, we sold the house and moved out here. I asked around, and nobody knows where that thing is or what happened to it. But I always thought that was really exciting because I love history. I love the idea that if you think about a cannon that's exploded like that, but I think that happened when they were really hot and when they were used a lot and when somebody put too much powder in it or something. And when they, if you can imagine, this thing is like walls that are like an inch thick. And something like that blowing up would have been catastrophic to whoever was using it. And there it was right on the hill, on the back, where, you know, it would be looking pretty much right down on the Connecticut River. And that always really interested me. When I heard about this, I thought, that's a little piece of history that I really, really feel connected to. And then I wanted to share. I always assumed it was during the time of the King Philip's War. You know, when there were settlers, there, were, there, were, there was a couple of forts on Main Street. And um, I would guess it would be back, you know, around the time that the town was first settled, those first few years. Don't know. I always assumed it was the good guys. <laughs> it's a different story from each side of the river. I don't know. Don't know. Another interesting thing is how we farmed land around here. If you go over the bridge that crosses the river, before you cross, there's a big field right there on the edge of the river. But we had a massive vegetable garden right there. And we would come over from Warwick in these farm trucks, like a stake bed farm truck that were uh, 1937 to 1948 Chevys and Ford old farm trucks, those old rattle traps with a flat bed and stake sides. And we'd put 20 or 30 people in the back of that thing and they'd be hanging off the side. And we'd come over from Warwick and we'd go over to that field and we had tomatoes, squash, beans. I mean, you know, everything that you can imagine we planted there. And Doug Edson, who still lives on the other side of the river, he's Renaissance excavating now. He'd be a great one to interview. He knows everything about everything. He's still part of the community over there. There's a remnant of people that have taken over all of the property. It's now in their names personally. He knew a lot about farming. And I still remember that we had these big buckets that that had manure in the bottom and water. It was manure water. And we would take that and we would pour it on the 
you know, in the hot sun, walking down. Everybody hated the garden crew. Nobody wanted to be on the garden crew because it was hard work. We'd walk these buckets and we'd pour it on all the plants and everything grew like crazy. It was incredible. And then the women would can. The men didn't can. The men were out logging. Well, the women were logging too. <laughs> but the kitchen crew was, it was incredible because we had these big commercial gas ovens. Not gas ovens, gas stoves. And people would can all those tomatoes and make sauerkraut out of the cabbage. And we lived off of our own food. And let me tell you, brown rice and squash and canned tomatoes and sauerkraut. And you're 17 years old, 18 years old, and that's what you're living on. We grew it. We ate it. And if the person that was cooking it burned the rice, oh well. Burned rice and nasty old Hubbard squash, that's your breakfast, you know. Really basic training kind of stuff, you know. There wasn't much protein. We didn't have eggs. Occasionally we'd have milk. Not much protein. There's supposedly a lot of protein in brown rice, but I was six foot one and a half and 155 pounds and starving hungry. We were so hungry. If you, if you snuck out and walked from Warwick down to the Warwick General Store and bought a package of Oreos, which I did with a girl, and we were walking home eating the Oreos and we got caught and somebody called us out in a meeting because that was like carnality. That was like the opposite of being spiritual. You know, you're spiritual over here, you're doing your job, and you're it's very, like, puritanical. But if you were caught eating Oreos or ice cream, man, you were, you were the lowest of the low. And uh, so we got in trouble. And I think at that point, we had split up to where there was Warwick and there was Northfield. And there was probably a hundred in each place. But the other thing I was going to say about farming in Northfield is that down by the river, behind the IGA and across the tracks, there's a whole lot of farmland right there that's adjacent to the river. And the farmer that owned that had trees along the edge of the river, and he wanted those cut, and we needed firewood. And we, we had this huge furnace that we had built out of an oil tank, one of those 55-gallon tanks. And somebody had welded a door in one end and a chimney in one end, and it would take four-foot logs. So it was cold. <laughs> we hadn't thought to store up wood. It was like, we got to get some wood. So this guy said, come on, get all the wood you want. So he took one of these old farm trucks over there every day, the logging crew this was. And that was another hated crew. You know, it's in the morning, you were going to go do something, and people that were running the logging crew were the couple of guys with chainsaws that were, all right, come on, I need 15 people for the day. And, you know, we don't want to go, but we'd go. And it was, a, this stands out in my memory as a really typical and really interesting day. Working together, as I said, maybe 15 or more people cutting maybe up to 30 people, cutting a tree, tree falls, they, they limb the branches. And then you cut it into a four foot length and four or six people, depending on however many it takes. I mean, if it's a couple of feet across, it's really hard to do. At the base, they were more like chunks, but as it got up toward the end of the tree, they were four foot lengths. 
And, you know, a bunch of us would get that and get it on our shoulder. And this, there were women and men doing this. And that was the coolest thing to work along in a mixed group like that. And we would carry it and we would get it up on the truck and there'd be a couple of people up on there and, and stack it on the truck. And, um, these logs. Yeah. Big, heavy logs and they're, they're green wood and oak and maple have this wonderful smell, you know, when you, when you cut it in the winter and, and it would be really cold and we'd have this big fire burning, you know, like a bonfire to stay warm. And you keep coming over and warming your hands and warming your feet. This was poverty. Like you can't even imagine. I mean, clothing, their parents would send clothing, but a lot of it was just used clothes that we, that somebody donated or we found or whatever. It was a really ragtag at that point in the early days. They were the most fun days. One day we got a loaded log truck stuck in the mud. There was mud down there and it was up to the axle. And I think, I think that memory embellishes, you know, and I think that if you took this story and cut it in half, you'd probably have the truth of it. But I remember everybody clustering around the truck and grabbing onto something and pushing it out of the mud and having it just go, <laughs> go up out of the mud. It may not have been fully loaded. That might be impossible. But it is amazing what 30 young people can do when they're all working together. It's incredible. And we got this sort of false confidence because I lived there seven years and I was so used to things being done by groups of people that were considered impossible. You can't do that. And we did it. <laughs> In that first year, we were in Guilford, Vermont for that first summer, a bunch of us. We had to carry our water up to the top of the hill and then boil it because it was contaminated water. But we wanted to build a barn on the top of this mountain or hill up in Guilford. And to make the foundation, we disassembled a stone wall. And we had probably, I think we had some people from Warwick over to help us because we were, there was about 80 or 100 of us that were going to live there for the summer. And that was because all these people had come because of those articles. There were so many people that we had to lease this land for a bunch of us to go live on. And so to make this foundation, we had to disassemble the stone wall. And the person would pick up, you know, rocks like this, pick up a rock, hand it to the next person and the next person. And you could look down the mountain and see, a, see these rocks coming up the hill like this. I mean, it's incredible to see. And the energy gets so high. People are so so happy. And, there's, and they're singing and they're moving these rocks. And there's a guy up there with cement and he's cementing them as they come up. And, you know, by the end of the day, there's a foundation there. And it's a pretty good foundation. It's level. It's square. You know, and then, hmm, we need wood. So we disassembled the barn and brought it up there in a big old army truck. And then those beams all came up. And... We got so far as to build a platform up there in Guilford for the, the barn and then realized that, hmm, you can't really get water up here. It's not going to work. And by then it was fall. It was this time of year. And everybody was like, oh, let's go back to Warwick. You know, so we went back to Warwick and left the place. And about four years ago, a bunch of us went up there and, uh, what used to be just this big open high meadow was all trees and we couldn't find where we were. And I said, see at the highest point, let's just start walking up and we're eventually going to get to it. And we came up and it was so eerie, you know, to come through the woods and see 
under the leaves and everything, this foundation, the wood was all gone. And in the cement, you know, at the footing, somebody had put their hand, you know, how people will do that. Somebody put their hand, somebody written their initials in the cement. There's just really one of those things that connects you to somebody who you were 40 years ago that you, that you still are, but you've really moved on from. We had a memorial service recently for a beloved friend, community person, and a whole bunch of people showed up. And it's bittersweet because it opens up all these memories. And you're, these are your, this is your family. It's just like family, you know. But it's also something that you've outgrown and left behind. And you've moved on from. And you don't have those same beliefs and opinions and ways of communicating. But that love and that friendship and that shared experience is still there. Probably a lot like going back to a big old family reunion, you know. But that's the gist of it. But you live with these people, you know. Yes. More than you live with yeah. your relations. Yeah, yeah. And that gets to the core of looking back. I'm 70, so I'm looking back at a lifetime and in a lot of ways looking back and saying, why, not like scratching my head full of angst but you know what why was that experience important why did i do that and why why haven't i stayed friends with that person what is it about that past experience that's made me just kind of keep those people a little bit of arm's length and i don't have the answers to those things i really don't i think that i've tried to become different person than I was trying to be back then. I was trying to be a successful rock musician. I was trying to be a successful artist. I was trying to, it was I, 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 me, me, me. I want to do this. I want to do that. And, and I don't have that anymore. It's a, it's a more of a, a, a desire to be selfless than, than self-aggrandizing, maybe. But I, th I think the community gave me the basis to explore that. Instead of going to college, I had seven years of intense working with people, working with people. And one of the things I realized early on is you can't have a falling out and an argument with somebody and leave them and, and quit and walk out. I mean, you can. People did. They left and lived in this house over here. But for the most part, in the earlier days when we were all living together, you had to work things out. And, and it was kind of like part of the creed. So I can remember going to one of the guys who just was an impossible jerk to work with and to do anything with. And I finally went up to him and I said, Steve, I've tried and tried and tried. And I just have decided I don't want to be your friend. I'm not even going to try anymore. I don't want to know you. You're an asshole. Excuse my language. And if you're going to be like that, I, I'm done. And he cried. <laughs> he cried. And we became really good friends after that because he didn't realize that he was doing that. There was another case of another person that I, I just said, I am, she was just, just like a Nazi house cleaning. You know, it's like, don't walk on the floor. I'm doing it. You're not doing it. I'm spiritual. You're not. You know, this kind of crap. I, I finally stood up and said, this isn't important to me anymore. You're not important to me anymore. And she became a really good friend. And I, I think the lesson in that is not to insult somebody and be hurtful to them, but to be truthful and establish a baseline that you can go forward from that's, that's real 
we both were willing to be friends and to move on. It wasn't me really drawing a line and closing the door. It was more trying to establish what was my truth, I guess you would say. And that, I think, played out a lot in the community. There was a lot of confrontation, a lot of people, you know, right up in each other's faces, working things out. And the desire was to come to a truthful relationship, a truthful brotherhood. And to the degree that that was successful, it's really, I think, one of the things that really held us all together for as long as it did. But there was, there was a lot of abuse of that. You know, there, there, the classic thing was a guy going up to a girl or a girl going up to a guy and saying, you know, it was absolutely 50-50 that way. I think we have something to work out. We have some karma that we need to work out. And I think we need to be together, which was code for let's sleep together, you know. And so it was all done on the belief in reincarnation. You know, you're going to work out your karma and then you're going to be free of this. It's just, I have to keep saying, look, we were teenagers. We were in our early 20s. And I think the value of what we did is Im immense not to the surrounding community, because everybody in the community, like in Northville, just hated us. We really were not very well liked. Oh, my God. When, when the house burned down at 88 Main Street, the people over at Ruiz came outside and were applauding. They were clapping. That's the legend, whether or not that actually was true. I don't know because I wasn't there, but somebody left a heater on upstairs and it, it burned down. Nobody was hurt. Were you around? No, I left by then. I was in Chicago. I know that when we would go over there to eat, she wouldn't serve us um, one of their plates, forks. She would give us a paper plate and a plastic fork because she thought we were, we, we were, uh, <laughs> and we, we were pretty grungy. I can see, you know, looking back, I can understand these people come in and they're just so, we, you know, we were young and singing songs and, you know, our whole thing was being positive and positive energy. And, you know, if you're an old curmudgeon trying to make a living and this, band of young weirdos comes in and wants coffee, you know, they get it in a paper cup. Because? I don't know. I guess we were dirty and in their eyes, in their eyes, we were dirty and going to spread germs and stuff. They were a little bit offensive. But some of the townspeople were, were mean. I mean, like the townies in Leiden burned down the treehouse, you know, that there was nobody there, but everybody knew who did it. You know, it was like some of the town guys that hated Michael and the whole commune thing. But it's understandable the way that society was here at that time. This was a really, it was farm country. These were conservative old American farm families. And the valley, as we know it now, the five college area and the valley is filled with things like yoga studios and acupuncture and solar companies and um, organic gardening and all that stuff. And we pioneered so much of that. We, we were doing solar at the end. We were at the forefront of that. We were all about vegetarian, organic, grow your own food, live off the land, uh, bartering. And that was just so against the way things were done that you can that's you, fair enough. I imagine that bartering within the community before we came along was a big part of it. I, I'm not saying that we invented that, but for us, it was sort of a matter of survival. You know, we would tear down a, an old tobacco barn for a farmer 
in exchange for the wood, you know. And all of our houses and stuff had <laughs> the interior walls. You know, if we were redoing a wall or adding a building, got the barn board treatment. <laughs> you got pretty sick of barn board. It's beautiful, you know. You can do interior walls with it. It's lovely. Some of it's golden brown, and we tore down a lot of barns. And I think we sold some of the wood, you know. I worked with Dale Sluter a lot. He's, he's another one. <laughs> he's a native. I think he was a native of Northfield. His family owned a farm. And he is, in some ways, a keeper of the original vision of the community. He still is really invested. Because Dale, and there are other people like this, that had real underlined three times spiritual experiences in the community. They were powerful experiences that these people had, and they carried that with them for the rest of their lives. And they're still trying to explain that to people and teach that to people. Because it did have a very rich spiritual component to it. I was skeptical about a lot of stuff. My father raised us with Eastern philosophy and Christian science was a little part of it. You know, there's a lot of mystical stuff and reincarnation and Madame Blavatsky and all these paranormal things. And we didn't have a TV. My father wouldn't have a TV in the house. He was an artist. And so this place for me was like a shoe in. It was like exactly what I had left from home. And when I came here, my father had notions of who he was in a previous incarnation. Very strong and intense. And I won't even go into that because it's not relevant. But people here in the community, I'd be like, oh, God, here we go again. Here's another Walt Whitman. Here's another Mark Twain, you know. And uh, Michael... <laughs> Michael was sure that he was Robert E. Lee. And that all started because... After one of these lectures, he came out and he said, I was General Grant. And this other guy that was one of the followers of Elwood said, no, I, I'm General Grant. <laughs> Michael came back a few days later and said, oh, I guess that was Robert E. Lee. So it was Robert E. Lee. We all had to be into the Civil War and Robert E. Lee. And I was just like, oh, God, really? Okay, whatever. And to this day, I don't think it's important, you know, Chances are, if I was somebody in another life, it was probably some insignificant, not insignificant, but you know what I mean? Like an everyday person. Not everybody had to be Mary Queen of Scots. You could have been Mary Queen of Scots chamber pot lady, you know? <laughs> you know what? So what? You don't have to be famous, bogus. It's stupid. And we were so obsessed with, oh, it was like an obsession in that community of, to be famous. It started with Michael and his band. And, you know, one of these days we're going to be bigger than the Beatles. We're going to make it and we're going to be famous. And okay, it sounded good to me as a kid. But then later, as I got older and got married and had children and settled down, I realized that's just another addiction, you know? It's like the need to escape from where you are. To be always obsessing about how your invention is going to change the world or your band is going to... You know, sometimes people really do have greatness. But I think a lot of times those of us that really have a great idea or a great invention or a great musician don't particularly seek that out. I don't know. That's just an opinion. I have a feeling that there's a, for all the bands like the Beatles that made it, there must have been hundreds that were just as good that just didn't get a break. So anyway, that's really a digression.
Joan and I were talking about her experience of building all these geodesic domes on the playing field at UMass and the students in, during the time in the 70s having the teachers come down and teach them on the field there instead of in the classroom. And I was saying that, well, it was during the Vietnam War, but it wasn't just the Vietnam War that there was this huge overturning of all kinds. of Everything was questioned. Everything was kind of turned over and, and scrutinized and questioned. And I'm not a sociologist. I don't really know what that all originated with. There are people in our community, Dale is one of them. There's a book called The Return of the Bird Tribes. Have you ever read that? I've never read it, but it's, it's the notion that when Nagasaki and Hiroshima exploded, there were all these souls that chose as a huge group to, to incarnate, to, to balance the, the imminent destruction of the human race. So there are all these people that wanted to do things differently, that wanted to show it doesn't have to be done this way. And, and they, they came full on to counter and question and change the way that things were being done. But it's an interesting idea to see all of this change just like, like that. And I'm sure a good historian would say, well, that happened here, 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 over the last thousand years. It's probably not the only time it's happened. But being part of it was really exciting and very hard to let go of for, you know, I, I left there and went out to Chicago to work with a healer that had cured somebody here from, she was dying of cancer and she cured her. I mean, flat out cured her. That woman lived, Betty Hoddle, lived to about 10 years ago, I think she died. But I was out there in Chicago and leaving the community and trying to fit into suburbia Chicago, working at a, in an art studio at a greeting card company and, and having money, having a paycheck, having money. Hello? You know, because any money that we had here, we put into the pot, you know, we'd, we'd make money and turn it in. But you got all your needs met by the, somebody at the office who would just give you what you needed, you know, if you could make a good enough case for it. But here, here I was in Chicago and I, and I had this real sense of loss, like being adrift. I didn't have this family around me. I didn't have this community around me. And um, a couple of people from the community moved out and we got an apartment out in Chicago because they had a similar thing. And that was okay. But living for seven years with all these people, uh, for years I dreamed of the community. And I felt that feeling of being cut off or adrift from having been in a very small microcosmic world where all your needs were met and you were part of something and you had an important place in it. It was like a very small, cozy little life. And then when that's away and you're out in the world, sure, you've got money coming in and you can buy yourself a new car and stuff. But there was this incredible feeling of loss and loneliness for years that I, that I eventually outgrew, you know, but it gave me a sense that, like sitting down talking with you, I can feel comfortable with you and feel like I know you and you know me and it's okay to talk and it's okay to, to be this way because I've lived for seven years with people that 
you know, you were always going for the deepest truth that you could possibly go for. And that's really good training. And sometimes the people that you were doing that with were not really good, truthful people. And you had to sort your way through it and find what was true and what was real. But in the end, it's that feeling that we really are all connected. What you said at the beginning, you know, you said we're all connected. And it's true. It really is. It's, there's no question about that. And oddly enough, to this day, I'm still, my tendency is to be a recluse, to go into a place somewhere and meditate and be alone and be quiet and do something creative. It's like, that's my safe place. It's so interesting that you were in Northfield, but in some ways didn't feel of Northfield or welcomed by, and, and then you still have gravitated back to this town. Yeah, isn't that? It really is. Sally and I met in Chicago and we lived on the Cape and then we lived in North Carolina for seven years. And then we lived in Indiana, Bloomington, Indiana for five years. And these were all chasing work and so forth. And um, we built a house on the Cape with a friend from the community who was a builder and, and lived in Falmouth. And I designed it and so forth. But long story short, my career doing product development for Waterford and Waterford Wedgwood and Lennox and Princess House and Party Light, all these companies. I was doing sculpting for nativity sets and I was painting collectible plates and I was doing all this stuff and it was a really good living. I could work at home. But it all collapsed after 9-11. It was like by 2007, it had all gone to China or it had disappeared. And we wound up hanging on by a thread until 2017, just barely making it. I did some websites and did some of this and that because the, the career that I had had just evaporated. And when we sold the house on the Cape, we made a really good profit on it because it was on the water pretty much in Orleans. It was a very exclusive area and we'd done really well with that house. So we paid off our debts and started looking out here. And we kept looking at Amherst area and I didn't want to live out here. It just seemed lonely to me and cold and out in the middle of nowhere. And we wanted to be in the five college area and I'm so glad we're not there. And we saw this house here. We drove by the house at 563 Pine Meadow Road. And it was like, oh my God, this beautiful area. They were growing turf down there. It was just like a huge golf course with these beautiful maple trees. And here was this little house for sale. I was like, incredible curb appeal. That place to me was like the most beautiful little house. And we finally wound up buying it. It's funny because a day doesn't go by. If I'm driving into Greenfield or going over to Turner's, I ride my bike around Montague a lot. There's some memory of being a kid that I'm reliving, revisiting, reprocessing, thinking through. It's good closure, you know. There's always something to contemplate. <laughs> How are you finding this town? I feel a little bad that I haven't gotten more involved uh, because I'm on next door and I, I really have a sense of the sweetness of the people here. It just seems like a lot of really, really nice people. And I've been kind of reticent and holding back a little bit, but I, I love that small town feeling, that feeling of home, you know, like it, it's homey feeling, you know. I love the library. I love coming in here. People know my name. They, they're, they're very pleasant. 
It wasn't like that on the Cape. The Cape is a suburb now. It's almost like a city. It's all the people that are there are very entitled. And you just feel like you're among people that are really out for what they can get, you know, and they, they cut you off in the rotary. They give you the finger. They're just, you know, it's really a different place. It's not like when I was growing up, there were people on, on our street that kept their lobster pots on their front lawn and their old boat, you know, was pulled up there. You know, it's like they were fishing people. They were working. People. It, all of that's gone. Everything's so precious and manicured and perfect and expensive and but Northfield wasn't so good to you when you were a kid. I mean, who are the people now? Is the, is the town different? And what's, I'm, I'm, I'm like a whole different person than I was back then. If I was a 70-year-old man living in Northfield when that was going on, I, w- I would have been more welcoming and, and curious about people, what they were doing. I probably would have invited them over. But I would have had some doubts about whether or not I wanted them living next to me. You know what I mean? It's almost like being a different person. I don't blame the town. The town itself has a very special feeling to it. It's an old town. It's a town with history. Some of the history isn't very nice, frankly. What do you mean? Oh, you know, (laughs) I don't want to get in any trouble, but, you know, we weren't all that kind to the Native Americans, you know, and this town played a big role in the King Philip's War. I feel like the Native Americans got a really, really bad end of the deal, and Northfield was right in the middle of all that. But I just love old New England towns, and this is like a quintessential, perfect old New England town. I'm one of those people that when they're talking about, let's put Northfield on the map, and let's have a huge concert, and have CBS on the, whatever, you know, it's like, I'm like, no, no, let's keep it exactly the way it is for eternity because that's something that's very priceless in our day and age. You can't get that back. (laughs) I like old-timey. It's very much the way it was in 1971 or 72. I remember there was Spencer Ford here. There was a gas station. I guess it was before 91 was put in. This was a really hopping place. But I remember there being that little gas station. Um, It's a tiny little building now, but it used to be a gas station. It was run by the Podlensky brothers. And you'd go in, and they were very friendly to the community. They let us buy our gas there. And those two guys, their mother lived on the side of the street that the school is, down a few buildings. But she was very friendly to the community, and she would feed us and take us into her kitchen, and she was very kind. Helen, yes, that was it. One of our guys, Ronnie Sellers, I wish you could talk to Ronnie Sellers. and In fact, I'm gonna, I'm, I recommend that you do. But Ronnie collected great community stories and could tell them. And as I was saying earlier, I think that the little bits of embellishments here and there to make it a better story happened. We were constantly beset by town officials to comply with things like septic regulations, um, water, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, like Warwick tried everything to get us out of there. And we hoodwinked them in several different ways and bamboozled things in ways that we could get around and find loopholes. I mean, we were pretty scrappy. But Ronnie Sellers was one of the guys in the community who was not a flaky artist or some wacky academic that was out there. He was very grounded. 
and he was very straight. Had short hair, dressed nice, no matter what. He always looked good and very handsome. He was very good at business. So Ronnie got the job of walking the building inspector around the theater, which is now the Shea Theater. And at this time, the place was called Metallica's Aquarium Concept. And Michael had said, everybody has to have a job, and every week everybody brings their money here in cash. This is like the Jim Jones era of the community. You'd bring your money in, in cash, and you'd come into the office. There would be Michael at this big desk, probably with a cigar or something. And he had this little notebook, and he would say, okay, what were you doing this week? And I was painting houses at that time. And how much have you got? And I remember turning at 350 bucks, which in those days was a lot of money. He thought I was dealing drugs. He said, you didn't. And I said, I did. He said, all right, here, here's the money. And what do you need? I need 50 bucks for gas and whatever. Okay, here's 50 bucks. It's a little tiny office and there was a door. And he would open the door and it dropped down about four feet to the level of the theater on the opposite side, which sloped down. And he would take the cash and he'd throw it in the room and close the door. The next person would come in and there's, you know, at this point, hundreds of people coming in, putting their cash on the table. And to prove this is true, I was a volunteer one week. They said, we need somebody to count the cash from this week. I mean, you have four or five people. So there was a door on the other side and you walk in and the cash was probably this high. How high? Probably two feet deep of cash in a room that was probably eight by 10. We took chairs and we sat there and we counted, I remember it being about 35,000 bucks, which was a lot of money back then. It might've been for two weeks, it might've been for one week, but it was $35,000. No big deal, bundle it up. You know, by now you're living in this place and this is no big deal, you know, money. Everybody's got money. We just did it and piled it up and nobody was doing any oversight as to how it was being spent or where it was going or whatever. We just, you know, everything was paid for and you got to do what you wanted to do and have your friends. And so Ronnie's walking the building inspector through the theater because we had built a recording studio up with a balcony. Thank you. And we had poured cement up there. And there was, you know, because a recording studio has to be cement. And there were big, big columns and everything to hold it. And the building inspector was concerned about that and looking at all the different things that we'd done. And Ronnie was showing him, and they were standing down on the floor. And he said, well, I think everything looks pretty good. And he goes, what's that? What's that door there? Where does that go? And Ronnie says, oh, it's nothing. And he says, well, I have to, I have to look. And he says, what's in there? And Ronnie says, deadpan. Well, that's where we keep our, that's where we keep our money. And the guy looks at him and he says, that's where you keep your money? And he said, yeah, that's full of money. And he said, well, I have to look. Ronnie opens the door and this cash flows out onto the floor of the theater. And the guy was absolutely stunned. And Ronnie said, pushing the money back up like this and closing the door, you know. It's just so bizarre. You can't, you can't imagine it. And the, the poor building inspector. I mean, we became the thing of legend among certain people in that area. And, and that was something that a lot of people didn't, they didn't like that, you know, because we were finding ways to become a nonprofit and, you know, became a 
church and all this silliness so we didn't have to pay taxes. And people were really, really, royally ripped about that. And I can see why they would be. You know, we weren't, we figured out how to get around the system because we were smart and there was a lot of us. And if one person didn't know how to do it, somebody else did. It's like collective consciousness, you know. <laughs> There's always somebody that can figure out some way to do something. But I always love that story. <laughs> it's just, it's funny that I'm, that I'm loving the story, but not realizing how twisted and screwed up it is, you know. It's like the uniqueness of it outweighs how, how really sad and screwed up that is, that all these kids are pouring their money into a room and nobody's even counting it. And one guy is, pretty much has the ability to do whatever he wants with it, you know, him and a small group of people. It was pretty sick. Well, it's many things, isn't it? Yes. It's many things. It is. I mean, and I'm full of the images of stones moving one by yeah, one. Yeah, that was incredible. People working together, yeah. and that's... What you seem like you were in it for. 40 or 50 people skinny dipping at night in the Green River. What's not to love? You know, standing around a campfire. I'm just so glad that you took us up on this offer to tell. We, we need these stories. We need this piece and we need you back. I'm, so, I'm so glad that you've invited me because I've wanted all my life to write this. And I'm not a great writer. But I've wanted to get these things down, and there are so many, so many, so many little stories that uh, at least now I'm getting to say some of them.